0: Listener supported.
1: WNYC Studios.
2: It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. So you could be forgiven for waking up confused as you heard the news this morning about last night's New Hampshire primary because the two big headlines seem to be contradictory. Right. Headline one, Donald Trump beat Nikki Haley decisively in the early state where she was supposed to have the best chance to beat him. Trump won by about 12 points. And Nikki Haley gave her most anti-Trump campaign speech yet in her remarks to her New Hampshire supporters, turning up the volume in her campaign as they head to South Carolina, where the recent polls have Trump way ahead by like 30 points. So here is Haley last night like you probably not heard her before.
3: The other day, Donald Trump accused me of not providing security at the Capitol on January 6th. Now, I've long called for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. Trump claims he'd do better than me In one of those tests. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But if he thinks that, then he should have no problem standing on a debate stage with me.
2: So we will start there to discuss the state of the race with Atlantic Magazine staff writer McKay Coppins, an award winner from the White House Correspondents Association for his coverage of the Trump presidency, and author of the book Romney, A Reckoning, which came out in October. Some of you will remember he was last on the show for that book. McKay's current article in The Atlantic is called You Should Go to a Trump Rally, and of course he'll explain why. McKay, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
2: So I was watching the news channels last night when the polls closed at 8 o'clock, and I'm seeing the numbers pile up for Trump from around the state very quickly. They're explaining where Haley underperformed, what she needed to pull even or pull ahead. And then the AP called the result for Trump really fast, like 10 after Mm -hmm. 8. And then right away, Nikki Haley comes out to give her speech, and boom, it's like the clip we just played, taking it to Trump like she has not done up to this point after getting, you know, the floor wiped with her. How do those things fit together?
1: I thought that was really interesting. Coming into New Hampshire, the the talk was basically about how well Nikki Haley had to do to stay in the race, right? And all the pundits were on TV handicapping the margins. And, you know, I was texting with Republican sources, strategists, donors who uh, were supportive of Nikki Haley's campaign. And they were saying, oh, you know, maybe it needs to be four or five points or it needs to be in single digits or or whatever. And 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 what's interesting is that Nikki Haley, I think basically went out there and gave that speech to answer the question of, of would she drop out very forcefully, right? That there had been this idea that, um, you know, if she didn't do well enough in New Hampshire, she'd quickly drop out and maybe even endorse Trump. Um, I think she is sh- trying to show with that speech that she is not going away. She's not ending her campaign. She's going to keep taking it to Trump and, and actually, as you point out, ratchet up the rhetoric. I, I think the one, uh, you know, Response that I I heard from a lot of Republicans after that speech was you know where was this Nikki Haley three months ago five months ago why why wasn't she coming out against Trump from the very beginning uh, but you know maybe it's better late than never
2: yeah and it's all strategy we don't have to look back at why she didn't uh, do it earlier but suddenly. Haley is running by questioning Trump's mental competency and challenging her, him to debate her to prove it like we heard there. That's one thing. And she started running harder on age. We even heard in that clip, one of the members of the crowd just shouted, geriatric, uh, <laughs> little ageism there uh, on, on the part of that individual, but age and on electability. She said, whichever party doesn't renominate it's 80-year-old, will probably win the election. And so here's another clip, as she said this, about what Joe Biden might want.
3: With Donald Trump, Republicans have lost almost every competitive election. We lost the Senate. We lost the House. We lost the White House. We lost in 2018. We lost in 2020. And we lost in 2022. The worst kept secret in politics. Is how badly the Democrats want to run against Donald Trump. He's a loser. They know Trump is the only Republican in the country who Joe Biden can defeat. You can't fix you can't fix the mess if you don't win an election. A Trump nomination is a Biden win. And a Kamala Harris presidency.
2: Once again, very boisterous members of the crowd. I don't know if that was all scripted or what. Uh, But, McKay, it is true that the polls show Haley beating Biden in a hypothetical matchup and Trump only about tied with him. So do you think as she tries to close the big polling gap in South Carolina, which is the next primary, she starts to lean into that sort of very practical electability argument much more?
1: I think that's probably her strongest argument. I remember a year ago talking to a Republican pollster who had been conducting focus groups with Republican primary voters, and she said, you know, the the stuff that the media obvi- uh, often wants uh, Republicans to use against Trump, mental acuity, for example. Um, you know some of the the lawsuits against him, even the you know sexual assault uh, allegations against him. That stuff doesn't work on Republican primary voters. What does is the argument that he would lose an election, right? If you can convince Republican primary voters that he will lose to Joe Biden, it's the most practical argument that wins them over. And so I think electability is going to be her argument going forward. The the problem she's going to run up against, because, because she's right about one thing in that, that, that little clip you just played, Donald Trump has actually been very effective at concealing the fact that he's basically a political loser when it comes to electoral politics. He won one election in 2016 and since then has presided over a series of political disasters for his party, losing the White House, the House and the Senate. But the reason that he's able to maintain this idea that he has some kind of magical hold on, on the Republican electorate is because he's really good at beating Republicans. Right. Oh. He's he, you remember the 2016 Republican primaries. he. he wiped the floor with that field he in the midterm elections that he wades into he's really good at beating other republicans in republican primaries and getting his handpicked candidates nominated they often don't fare that well in general elections and so what what's happening now is once again he has beaten all but one Republican uh, primary opponent. She's still hanging in there, but in, in the two races that have happened so far, he's beaten her. If she wants to make the electability argument, she is going to have to start winning some primaries, not just coming in, you know, distant seconds or even close seconds.
2: Clearly. And I guess the two arguments go together from the two clips we played. Like Trump is becoming mentally unfit at his age. He's 77, but she started calling him an 80-year-old in the speech right. last night to equate him with Biden. And yes, Trump would turn 80 this uh, in this next term if he's elected. He's mentally questionable. Her other argument, the Democrats will exploit that, and then we lose. So mental competency slash That's age right. and electability— Combined. And nobody's really leaned hard into those arguments yet in the Republican race. And maybe while many pundits are simply writing her off this morning, what we're really seeing is the start of a whole new shape of this race or meaningful chapter in this race. And on these new terms, this is day one of a month long campaign to the next vote, which is February 24th in South Carolina. That happens to be one month from today. And we'll see how it goes. No, we don't know.
1: No, I think that's right. I mean, look, I've been a a big uh, voice of caution against us in the media leaning too far into the inevitability of another Trump victory. Right. Um, I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion that he'll win the nomination because there are so many X factors. For for one thing, you have now a Republican primary opponent. It's a two person race. And his opponent now seems willing to make a much stronger case against Trump. The other thing is that he is still facing criminal charges in, in multiple jurisdictions all over the country. He's going to be in courtrooms. There are go- he, he could be convicted in the coming months of at least one felony. And that could change the shape of the race as well. You know, one of the scenarios that I keep hearing from Republicans who are supportive of Paley is that maybe she should just stay in the race, yeah. slowly racking up delegates. You know, they, it's it's worth noting that as of the latest count in New Hampshire, yes, Trump beat her by 10, 11, 12 points, but he, he has won 12 delegates. She's won nine. So, you know, the breakdown in delegates is not actually that dramatic. And so maybe she should just keep winning delegates And hanging out and seeing if something happens, if Trump is convicted, that could change Republican primary voters uh, calculus when it comes to who they want to nominate. So, you know, that is one scenario. The question is is whether she has the stomach for that. There's going to be enormous pressure from the party for her to drop out and to line up behind Trump. If she has the stomach to stick it out and continue to take it to Trump, you know, she at least has an outside chance of of winning this nomination somehow.
2: Yeah, I had a similar thought that Haley is maybe staying in as the last alternative standing because stuff happens, right? Trump has all these criminal charges. Also, maybe at his age and state of fitness and diet and everything, uh, something does happen. And a month to South Carolina is a long time. You know, something like that is perhaps in her mind, though I certainly hear what you say about the likely gathering pressure uh, for her to drop out. There is there is As I saw in some of the reporting last night, a sort of opposite pressure for her to stay in, which is that a lot of Republican donors, not Mm -hmm. the little donors who Trump racks up, but a lot of the more um, business sector donors, is that the right way to put it, who don't want Trump again, are probably willing to keep writing Haley checks so she can stay in. She had a very good uh, fourth quarter of 2023 in terms of fundraising. Have you seen anything like that?
1: That's right. I mean, her campaign is very well funded right now. Um, she has enough money, certainly, to to at least wage a, a real campaign through South Carolina. The, when I was texting with one Republican donor yesterday, um, I was just asking him, you know, look, uh, w- what will it take for, for people to keep writing checks to Haley? And he, he he was kind of handicapping and saying, well, you know, she needs to come in a close second in New Hampshire. But the reality is there probably are a certain segment of true believers, you know, anti-Trump Republicans in the donor class, who as long as there is somebody to write a check to will continue to fund her campaign. That said, a lot of these guys are pretty practical and if they see the writing on the wall mm. that Trump is going to be the nominee and has you know, a 50-50 chance of winning the White House, a lot of those guys will bail out and start lining up behind Trump, too, for their own, you know, business reasons. So Haley really needs to show signs of life in South Carolina, I think, to to go beyond that race.
2: Listeners, your thoughts or questions about New Hampshire primary night and what comes next and anything related for McKay Coppins from The Atlantic, 212-433-WNYC, call or text 212 433 nine, six, nine, two. There are so many interesting angles from the last few days. Um, let me uh, pick a few here. One is, I noticed in that electability clip that we played, she used Kamala Harris as a scary monster. Did mm-hmm. you catch that? Like, if, you know, if Trump runs, he will lose, and then Biden will be president. Oh, and we know that means then Kamala Harris will be president, meaning Biden's right. going to die in office. Uh, so she so so she used Kamala Harris as a scary monster. What'd you make of that? And had you heard that before?
1: The, well, not necessarily from her, although uh, it's possible I've missed it. But that is consistent with a strategy that we've seen from Republicans over the last few years. I remember early in the Biden presidency, uh, writing a piece about the conservative book publishing industry, and the specifically what they called the Biden problem, which is that for to sell these conservative books, they need a boogeyman, right? They need a villain. And, And uh, over the last 30 years, they've had a series of obvious villains, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Nancy uh, Paul, Pelosi, big one, Nancy Pelosi. sir. The, they, they, they all moved books. You could write books about those people. You could put them on uh, scary looking pictures of them on the cover and conservative book buyers would snap them up. Joe Biden didn't work as a villain. And, and in part, that's because hmm. the predominant conservative narrative about him is not. he's a villainous radical trying to destroy the country it's that he's feeble and uh you know losing his mind and that might you know be fun to talk about on fox news but it, it doesn't move books and it doesn't uh scare people right if they think of joe biden as just this kind of old confused man they might not like the idea of him as president but they're not scared of him and so i think what you saw nikki haley doing was pointing to kamala harris who actually is Uh, somebody who a lot of Republicans are, you know, filled with, you know, not if hostility toward fear of uh, resentment toward for all kinds of reasons. And so I think making her the face of the Biden campaign to the extent that uh, she can or that other Republicans can, that'll be a strategy I think we'll see all, all this year.
2: Yeah. So I guess it's worth saying out loud that I usually think portraying Harris as a threat is playing the Scary black woman card. Like, Biden is bad enough, but if he dies, you're going to have the radical in the White House, which isn't really based on policy differences between Biden and Harris that they're citing. Just, ooh, uh oh, Kamala Harris, who, you know, Trump makes fun of her first name to make it sound foreign. Like he still says Barack Hussein Obama, as you point out in your article about the Trump rally. And it's really race and gender baiting. So tell me if you see it differently. But um, maybe that's what we saw from, you know, a a woman of color herself in New Hampshire last night.
1: There's no question that's that's a part of it. I remember talking to conservative book editors back then and they, they would admit as much off the record or on background. They'd say, you know, look you put a picture of of an angry looking Kamala Harris on the cover of a book, maybe that 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 scares Republican voters into buying it. Right. Um, that said, it's also true that Joe Biden is seen. His reputation is that of a kind of more moderate, pragmatic Washington deal maker. Right. Kamala Harris had kind of shaped her image as more of a, you know, progressive, champion. Right. She came out of California politics. She was more vocal about issues like abortion. uh, So these social issues that Republican voters are really motivated by. So there is, I think, a policy and and political component to it. But Mm -hmm. you can't separate that from her race and gender. No question.
2: Also, from one of the clips we played, there really has not been any pressure on Trump to attend a Republican debate. I think everybody's kind of shrugged it off as, yeah, well, of course, he's way ahead. And that's what any politician who's way ahead does. They say, no, 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 I don't need to debate. And Haley raised that in one of the clips last night. I don't think the pressure becomes too much for him to resist between now and South Carolina. But do you see a path to a one-on-one debate?
1: Not before South Carolina. I mean, I would I would love to be proven wrong as a journalist. Obviously, I think the more information we can get about our candidates, the better. Um, I think Donald Trump would fare pretty poorly in a debate with Nikki Haley. Maybe I'm wrong. He has been very good in in past Republican debates that good in, in that he's good at, you know, mocking and bullying and, and taking over uh, the stage. That said. Um, I think that, again, Nikki Haley needs to win some primaries. If she wins in South Carolina or comes very close, if she wins in some states beyond and Trump actually does feel the pressure uh, to knock her out, then maybe he does need to do a debate. I will say the thing that I detected from his speech last night is that he is really irritated by the fact that Nikki Haley won't just drop out and endorse him like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, He seemed... It, really bothered by that. I mean, the sense of entitlement he has to just kind of be coronated is palpable. And so th- that is the X factor. And, and maybe the one caveat I'd add to my answer is that it's possible that he just gets so angry and annoyed by Nikki Haley that he blows off his advisors who are telling him it's not a good idea and agrees to do a debate just because he wants to yell at her or something like that. Right. And so it, that that is something to watch.
2: Richard in Cold Spring. You're on WNYC. Richard, thank you for calling in.
1: Hi, Brian.
0: Great to be with you. Um, I'm a registered Democrat. I'm going to preface this with that. I was watching Fox News this morning as the alternate, and not the people on the couch, but their reporters in New Hampshire were reporting that unaffiliated voters and a 17% of their exit poll. Uh, Republican voters said that they would not support Donald Trump in an election. In fact, they would support Joe Biden.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think lot... that
0: really signals a problem—a problem for Donald Trump.
2: Richard, thank you very much. Uh, you know what? Hold your hold your thought on that for a second, McKay. Um, an attention controller. We're going to take a break right here, and and because this is a that's a good call on which to make a segue. Um, to breaking down the actual results in New Hampshire a little bit. And even as interesting to me, what some people were saying in the exit polls, like what Richard just cited there. Um, And and there's the Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis dropping out factor, which I think also was really interesting and not that much discussed over the last day. Um, So a lot more to get to with McKay Coppins from The Atlantic. And some of your calls, 212-433-WNYC, calls or texts, as we continue on The Brian Lehrer Show. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, as we continue to talk about New Hampshire and what comes next with McKay Coppins from The Atlantic. He's uh, got an article called, You Should Attend a Trump Rally, and we will get to that, Um, but let's Pick up on what the caller before the break was saying and look at some of the exit poll results last night. Uh, He cited one, one that's related that I picked up on was that people identifying as Republicans made up only about half the electorate in New Hampshire. The other half was independents who were allowed to vote in that state. And that's why it was even as close as it was, 55 to 43. Haley only won a quarter of those calling themselves Republicans I think the the caller um uh, was focused on the other side trump didn't win that many of those calling themselves independents so what do you take from that
1: you know on one hand uh it's a good sign for trump's prospects of winning the republican primary new hampshire is is famously a more moderate uh state uh the new hampshire primary voters uh tend to th- attract a lot of independents moderates um and so it's possible that this is actually the one of the better states that nikki haley could perform in and that it's kind of downhill from here for her that said i think the point the caller made is a good one which is this does not bode well for trump's um uh general election prospects right the fact that not only independents moderates people who might have already been inclined to vote for joe biden but people who are voting for nikki haley are saying that if it's Trump, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I, I, that, that, that should be a five-alarm yeah. uh, fire for, for the Trump campaign, right? That, uh, it, 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 we'll see how, how, it, how it bears out, and we'll, we'll need to keep watching exit polls in the coming races, but that is something I know that the Trump campaign is going to be worried about.
2: And I picked up on another exit poll detail along the same lines. Did you see this? Two-thirds of the voters last night in the exit poll report that I saw— said they do not identify as MAGA. Mm-hmm. And then they looked back to Iowa, and they said even half the voters in Iowa said that, that they do not identify as MAGA, according to the entrance and exit polls there, where, of course, Trump won bigger. Does that suggest an actual electability issue for Trump in the general, or is it just words?
1: It might just be a case of the difference between, you know, um, the most hardcore Trump supporters and then people who will vote for him despite not seeing themselves as their identities based around that. Right. New Hampshire, especially, is kind of a state full of contrarian voters. They don't like to see themselves often as kind of associated with a movement. They see themselves as discerning voters who are picking their candidates based on their own you know, reasons and judgment. Um, that said, uh, you know, I that that was notable to me as well, that the, the core of Trump support um, might be smaller in the Republican Party than I think a lot of people realize. I, you know, I, I think it's still notable that in both Iowa and New Hampshire, Um, Trump is getting around 50 percent, 50, 55 percent of the vote that, you know, that means that there are a lot of Republican voters, maybe not the majority, but a very large swath of Republican voters who are ready to move on from Trump. Um, And, you know, what those people do if he's the nominee again is going to be. A really key question. You know, maybe not all of them will vote for Biden, maybe a very small percentage. Well, but if they stay home, if they're not willing to donate, if they're not willing to knock doors or work for the campaign, volunteer, get the word out to their friends, that's going to be a real problem for him in in swing states.
2: Here's a a Harris comment, Kamala Harris comment from a listener who texted us after, you know, we we mentioned what, uh, how Haley used her last night um, listener writes Harris made her reputation And showed competence as a tough lawyer Oh, I'm sorry That's, that's the wrong one um, let, me, let me get to the right one I apologize um, uh, You know what, I'll have, to, I'll have to Come back to that Let's take Pete in Sherman, Connecticut Who's been talking to his father Who lives in Charleston, South Carolina South Carolina, the next state Where there'll be a primary Pete, you're on WNYC, hello
0: Hey, bro, I love the show. Yeah. My dad, he's a, uh, born in, born in New York, raised in New York, moved to South Carolina in his fifties, total liberal lives in Charleston. And he's been telling me that people, um, especially in Charleston, the Republicans are completely done with, um, Trump and, uh, are with Haley. And hopefully I think, uh, uh, nine point, um, uh, a deficit that she had last night isn't bad if she can keep a momentum and get something even uh a half of south carolina not a half even a third, a third of south carolina start to to vote for her it will change things that's what my dad says of the feeling he gets down there and he's a pretty bright guy he just wanted to tell you and he listens yeah. to you He listens to you on uh, his computer
2: down there. (laughs) Yes, go South Carolina listeners. Pete, thank you very much. Any thought uh, about that observation? Obviously, it's a focus group of one, McKay, but still.
1: Well, no, I mean, look, Nikki Haley was a popular governor of South Carolina. There's a reason that her campaign thinks it would be worth sticking it out through her home state. Um, Now, the polls do not look good for her right now. Um, Trump has a significant lead there, but... You know, the the campaign is about to go up with a $4 million ad buy uh, in the state uh, trying to remind voters of her accomplishments as governor, why they elected her in the first place, why they like her. Her, her case is going to have to be, in addition to electability, in South Carolina, reminding people that. You may have liked Donald Trump as president, um, but you also liked me as governor. And I have a lot less baggage, and I'm several decades younger. Um, And so, you know, vote for me. I think that's going to be the case that she she has to make there.
2: Here's that Kamala, Kamala Harris comment. Listener writes, as an independent Jew who is more supportive of Israel, Kamala does indeed frighten me. It's been said that she is far more pro the ceasefire camp and yes, more progressive. Don't forget, Haley is also a woman of color, and I support her, although a Biden presidency is totally fine with Me Too, as long as it isn't Harris. This isn't a race or sexism concern, writes this listener. So that's one person's point of view, but it makes me wonder um, how the Middle East could potentially play in a Biden-Trump, assuming it's Biden-Trump, um, or Biden-Haley, you know, I don't know that Haley and Trump are very different on the Middle East. So in any case, uh, and I don't know that Biden's been so different from them, from them either, and, or that Kamala Harris has said anything different from Biden, but there's, there's a perception of one person going in <laughs> right. that might be telling. And, oh, by the way, Kamala Harris's husband is Jewish, and he would be the first Jew in the White House.
1: You know, I thought it was notable that yesterday, uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris were holding a rally in Virginia in support of abortion rights. And at that rally, I don't know how widely this was reported on, it it was interrupted, I think four or five times by pro-Palestine protesters who were demanding that Joe Biden uh, and Kamala Harris, uh, you know, stand up for Palestinians, call for a ceasefire, put more pressure on Israel. This is going to be this is a real generational divide within the Democratic Party. Um, You see younger, more progressive voters, um, much more skeptical of Israel, uh, much more supportive of Palestine and angry that the Biden presidency, the Biden administration isn't doing more to align with their uh, their views on the issue. Uh, You know, if he was in a real primary race, I could see that issue uh, becoming really salient. Going into the general election, I think your point is right. I'm not sure that there's enough of a contrast in voters' minds between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump or Nikki Haley and Kamala Harris uh, on on how their approaches would differ. Maybe, maybe that'll change, but at least as of now, I don't see a huge amount of daylight between their positions.
2: Here's another text from somebody in New Hampshire who voted yesterday. It says, I am a New Hampshire voter registered as an independent, and I voted yesterday. Most of my life I've been a registered Democrat, but when we moved up here, I became an independent. It's important to state that New Hampshire makes it really easy for independents to vote in primaries. My wife and I rode in Joe Biden yesterday, but I know a bunch of Democrats, though registered as independents, who voted for Nikki Haley in the Republican primary and plan to vote for Biden in November. So an interesting take. And, yeah, the mm-hmm. independents can choose which, um, uh, which, which primary to vote in, and there was no meaningful Democratic primary yesterday. But, McKay, it's probably worth a moment anyway to say um, uh, that there was voting for Democrats yesterday, not very meaningful, because officially their first primary is in South Carolina. Uh, mm-hmm. But there were like 20 Democrats on the ballot, not including Joe Biden. And yet he won handily by people writing him in. So I don't That's know if right. it means anything. It's like a footnote to history, but does it mean anything?
1: Well, his, his, uh, his opponent, Dean Phillips, I think will be the, the kind of an answer to a Jeopardy question one day, right? I think he he got in he got twenty percent of the vote or something. But, yeah, look, I, I I don't think there's any question about Joe Biden's, you know, renomination at this point. Um it but but this does raise an important point to make. So, yes, New Hampshire uh, is makes it really easy for independents to uh, vote in either primary. That said, South Carolina is also technically an open primary. Um, And so are a number of states going forward uh, on Super Tuesday. These are, uh, you know, there are a number of states where you don't have to be a registered Republican to vote. Nikki Haley is going to count on those independent support. That said, the fact that South Carolina is actually officially holding a Democratic primary, um, probably I I could see that hurting Nikki Haley because a lot of Democrats in New Hampshire Probably, you know, changed changed their affiliation to independent so that they could vote for her. Um, In South Carolina, they're probably just going to vote for Joe Biden, and that's going to be a problem for her because she needs those people.
2: He actually cares there. He wants to run up his vote there. Um, So I I haven't seen a breakdown of who former Chris Christie supporters and former Ron DeSantis voters, who both dropped out in the last week, wound up voting for. Did you?
1: No, uh, not not yet. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll we'll get some more information like that. The polls going into New Hampshire suggested that um, people who were supportive of Christie were breaking largely for for Nikki Haley, but we haven't seen exit poll data along
2: yeah. those lines. and I think people who um, supported DeSantis were Probably expected to break mm-hmm. very strongly for Trump. Um, You know, which could even because there seems to be no love lost between DeSantis and Haley at all. Um, (laughs) And I even thought maybe this is conspiracy theory, but I thought DeSantis might have dropped out specifically to help Trump and hurt Haley because he could have siphoned off some MAGA leaning voters um, from Trump. And that could have helped Haley percentage wise if DeSantis had stayed in.
1: That that was the best case scenario for Nikki Haley would have been for Christie to drop out DeSantis to stay in. Right, that could have cut the margin maybe in half for her. But Ron DeSantis knows what he's doing. He wants a future in Republican politics. His base is the Trump base. And uh, he wants to stay in Trump's good graces. And I think yeah. he knew what he was doing.
2: So I want to play a clip of DeSantis from his dropout video. He noted that he had pledged to support whoever the Republican nominee is, but then he specifically endorsed Trump and took this hard swipe at Nikki Haley.
0: He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old
2: Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackage formed of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. The days of putting Americans last, of kowtowing to
1: large corporations, of caving to woke ideology are over.
2: He puts corporate interests and, quote, woke interests (laughs) in the same breath. So when he frames Haley as a corporate Republican, help me out on this, McKay, as somebody who has covered Republicans per se so much, as you've done. It strikes me as funny because Trump's policies were pro-corporate, like most Republicans. No, he supports the business lobby over union interest. He supports drill, baby drill, the fossil fuels industry. He wants to weaken the Consumer Financial Protection Board, a stop to the banking industry. He cut taxes on corporations. What, What is the distinction that DeSantis is trying to make there?
1: Well, I think the the point you're making is that the way that Donald Trump actually governed as president was actually quite different from the way that he ran at least in the Republican primaries when he was drawing contrast in 2016 between himself and other Republicans. Trumpism, the the kind of general program that he was advocating for if you can, you know, figure it out based on his <laughs> often incoherent speeches and social media posts is more hostile to corporate power. DeSantis, as a manifestation of that, you know, has famously picked fights with, for example, the Disney Corporation in Florida um, as in part kind of its
2: diversity initiative.
1: That's right. So the the way that he has threaded that needle and the way that you see a lot of uh, more, you know, so-called populist Republicans doing this is that they single out Diversity, equity, and inclusion, equity and inclusion initiatives in large corporations as a way to look like they are doing battle with corporate Mm. power. I do think there is actually a strain of this new generation of Republican leaders. Trump set Trump aside, but DeSantis, people like Josh Hawley and JD Vance in the Senate, who are generally less. Uh, in bed with corporate interests, less interested in catering to the Chamber of Commerce, Republicans. And, you know, they see themselves as helping to bring about some kind of political realignment. Uh, Nikki Haley, I think, is less self-conscious about just kind of being an old school Reagan Republican and in, in, you know, wanting to support businesses and corporations. Um, but, but you're right that when you actually look at the policies of Donald Trump versus Nikki Haley, uh, it's not clear to me that Trump's first term is, you know, when it comes to corporate power, radically different than Nikki Haley's would have been.
2: Your article in The Atlantic. You should go to a Trump rally. I know you got to go in a couple of minutes, but I want to make sure to touch on on your article. Um, By way of background, I'll tell people you went to a lot of Trump rallies when you were covering the 2016 campaign, but you wrote you hadn't been to one since 2019. What were you looking for? And in a soundbite length, what did you find?
1: What I found was that I like I think a lot of Americans have had managed to sort of tune Trump out. You know, I I, I had this image of him based on my years of watching his rallies. Um, but being there in person gives you a tactile sense of what's at stake in this election, both from his move, the movement that he commands, talking to his supporters and watching Trump speak himself. I, I watched an hour and a half of Trump up on stage talking. On the one hand, it's, you know, darker and more shocking than you can imagine uh, if you're not paying close attention. On the other hand, he also seems to have lost his instinct for entertainment the way that he was able to hold and, uh, you know, capture people's attention in 2016. I'm not sure he has that. And, And the point that I'm trying to make is that. We have started to see Donald Trump as an abstraction. And I think if you want to be a good citizen, regardless of what party you support, where you are on the political spectrum, you need to uh, tune back in and really watch this guy to understand what is at stake in 2024.
2: You're 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 making a media point here to some degree, too, right? That yeah. it was bad of the media to give his rally so much oxygen in 2016 because it was like, oh, what is he going to say? But it helped uh, that entertainment spectacle help fuel the rise of Trump, who many people consider really dangerous. Now it's become like normalized, so well, they're not and, and, looking at really outrageous, scary things that he says.
1: So yes, but I would also add to that that we're now making the opposite mistake. We we overlearned the lessons of the first Trump term. To where now, you know, we don't take his speeches live. We don't cover every social media post. And and, and I get it. I get the instinct. But at the same time, I think that's allowed a lot of Americans to just kind of stop paying attention to him. And he's gotten in many ways more radical and more extreme since 2016. And I think that Americans need to tune back in and pay attention to that.
2: I know we're at the end of our scheduled time. Uh, if you got to go, just tell me and it's fine. But I, I would extend you for a couple of minutes on on this point um, if you have the time. Yeah, so you yeah, just sure. tell me. Um, so here's an example of what you were just saying from his Manchester, New Hampshire rally on Saturday Uh, that for people who are paying attention strikes them as Trump leaning into wanting to be an authoritarian, a strong man in the way he praised Hungary's increasingly authoritarian and culture war-based leader, Viktor Orban. Listen to the words. There's a great man, a great leader in Europe, Viktor Orban. He's the, he's the prime minister of Hungary. He's a very great leader, very strong man. Some people don't like
0: him because he's too strong. It's nice to have a strong man running your
2: country. So he taunts the country of the United States by using the term strongman and praising it and praising right. Orban, who is that. Is that the kind of thing you want people to see at his rallies and why you w- wrote the article to some degree?
1: That's right. I mean, that, that's one of the things. I do think that the authoritarian um, tendency that has always been subtext to his campaign has become much more... You know on the surface he talks about wanting to be a dictator for a day he talks about um you know uh, using the justice department to go after political enemies he uh you know we we at the atlantic recently published an issue called if trump wins that just goes through all Mm -hmm. the implications of another trump term you take some time to read that this isn't kind of wild speculation from you know uh, alarmist writers. This is uh, based largely on what he and his closest political allies say that they want to do uh, if if he gets back into the White House. I would urge people to read that issue and and to, again, to, to start watching his speeches. He is being very clear about his uh, lack of care about any kind of Democratic norms, uh, any kind of constraints on the president. And I think that it's important to understand what he will do if he gets back into office and i don't think you can really fully grasp it unless you are you know going to his rallies or at least watching them in full and really taking the time to listen to him i know that that sounds unpleasant <laughs> to a lot of people to to your listeners i mean there is a reason that i i stopped going i had other assignments and a book project but you know I think that it's time to tune back in. We're we're this is the this is the moment. It's an election year. He is going to be the nominee most likely. I think we need to we need to start paying attention again.
2: I'm going to stretch your goodwill by another 30 seconds because I think you'll like this. I think you've inspired at least one listener to try to attend a Trump <laughs> rally. Elijah in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hello.
0: Yeah. Hi. Uh, big fan of the show. Um, I just wanted to say I'm curious about the guest's um, opinion about attending the rallies as a form of protest. Um, I think that the lack of um, norms on the part of his base is a huge part of the story. And I wonder if um, civil obedient protest in the tradition of King and Gandhi could bring out the nature of what's going on with his base in a way that might be informative to other citizens.
1: Mm. Um, It's a great question. I have been, you know, uh, like I said, I've probably attended 100 Trump rallies in my life. Some of the scariest ones were those where protesters showed up, disrupted the event, uh, trying to make a point, you know, about immigration or another issue. Um, And if some of his supporters would surround them, scream violent threats at them, shove them. uh, That happened, I think, just recently at a, a Trump rally. It is, uh, you know, I I obviously am all in favor of protest of any kind. I think that's part of what makes our country great. Um, But I I would, I guess, just say as a note of caution that um, yes, Trump supporters in many of these events will get, uh, you know, physical with protesters. And so if you go there planning to disrupt the rally, just be prepared for, for those consequences. But to the caller's point, I think it could, yes, illustrate Uh, kind of the nature of his movement, at least a certain uh, strain of his movement.
2: Atlantic Magazine staff writer McKay Coppins, also author of the book that came out in October, Romney, A Reckoning, and now his new article in The Atlantic called You Should Go to a Trump Rally. Well, you convinced Elijah at very least. And (laughs) McKay, thanks as always for coming on. Really appreciate it. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, more in a minute.